Well, good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute. Uh, today we're going to be talking a little bit about the nuclear weapons arsenal and spending on nuclear programs. Um, before we uh, get to our first speaker, though, I wanted to briefly plug the Cato Handbook for Policymakers. It's a resource we uh, publish every four years. Provides a good overview of virtually every issue you'll be talking about here on Capitol Hill, ranging from today's subject, broadly, uh, certainly foreign policy, to entitlement reform, uh, civil liberties, you name it, it's in the, the handbook for policymakers. Uh, it's, a, it's a publication we do provide to every congressional office free of charge. Um, if you have a copy in your office but uh, uh, your colleague uh, hogs it or uh, you just would like a second as a, as a reference book to have there on your desk, uh, by all means, please let me or, or one of my colleagues at the Cato Institute know. We'll be happy to get you one. It's also available, I should mention, on our website, cato.org. Uh, backslash handbook in its entirety. You can print off all the PDFs uh, if you'd rather access it electronically. Um, with that, I'll go ahead and introduce our, our first speaker for today. Um, we're very, very pleased to have with us Stephen Schwartz. He is the editor of the Nonproliferation Review, which is a publication of the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies. Uh, previously, he served as publisher and executive director of the Bulletin for Atomic Scientists, as a guest scholar and project director with the Foreign Policy Studies Program at the Brookings Institution, uh, as a Washington representative for the Alliance for Nuclear Accountability, as Legislative Director for the Nuclear Campaigns with Greenpeace USA, and as Associate Director of the Council for Nuclear Affairs. With that, I'll turn things over to Mr. Schwartz. Great. Well, thank you very much. It's uh, wonderful to see so many people here today. Yes. You want to? See? Is that okay? Oh, you're not okay. Oh, you oh oh oh. Yeah, oh, you want me up there? Yeah. Oh, okay. Ah, okay. All right. Okay. Okay. Well, I'll be even more because of the crowd of people. Got it. See okay. you All through right. the crowd All of right. people. Well, hopefully I can <laughs> bring this up here. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay, great. Well, Okay. Um well, Good afternoon. Uh, I'm a little under the weather, so my voice isn't uh, what it normally is. Uh, hopefully the microphone will compensate. It's great to see so many people come out for an issue that um, doesn't normally get that much attention, at least uh, uh, legislatively. Uh, Congress uh, certainly does pay attention to budgets, but when it comes to nuclear weapons budgets, uh, more often than not, it looks at the um, the micro rather than the macro. It looks at individual programs rather than the overall uh, picture. And one of the things that we tried to do in, uh, in our report, with copies of which are available on the table um, out front, uh, which I you know, encourage you to take a copy of if you don't have one already, is to try to take that broad look and uh, encourage uh, Congress and encourage policymakers, frankly, throughout the government um, to do the same because it's something that has uh, – I think, been overlooked um, for too long. Now, why does any of this matter? Why should we be concerned about um, uh, the cost of nuclear weapons? Um, you know, the Cold War is over, uh, and whatever the costs are, they, they can't be that significant, right? Well, to give you a little perspective, um, when I was at Brookings uh, uh, in, the, in the mid to late 90s, I worked on a book called Atomic Audit, which was the first and so far only effort to quantify the total uh, amount of money spent by the United States on all nuclear weapons and weapons-related programs. And uh, it might surprise you to learn uh, that we discovered that nuclear weapons uh, were the third most expensive government program historically, 
uh, after all other national defense, that is all non-nuclear defense spending, and Social Security. And uh, although we have not had an opportunity to update all the figures in the report, or in the book rather, since then, uh, I strongly suspect that that is still the case. That's historical, obviously. What are we talking about today? Well, this report deals with the 2008 budget. Obviously, we've just had the 2011 budget uh, released by the administration uh, a few weeks ago. I have not, unfortunately, had time to pour over it in detail, so I can't give you a, a thorough report, and I also neglected to request PowerPoint, so even if I had I wouldn't be able to show you the slides, but I, hopefully we can go over it uh, in a little bit of detail. Uh, and then as the budget year progresses, um, you know, those of you that work on these issues can perhaps um, delve in it, uh, into it more deeply. Um, so what does, uh, what does our report say about nuclear security spending and why does this matter? Well, the first thing to note is that there is not a nuclear weapons budget. Uh, you cannot go anywhere in the budget documents and find specifically uh, you know, with any exactitude how much money we're spending on nuclear weapons. You can go to the Department of Energy's uh, budget request and see how much money they're spending, and you can go to the Defense Department and get a rough idea for one portion of the nuclear weapons program that's under their purview how much we're spending. Uh, but it's not anything that can be easily sussed out. So what we tried to do with this report and with the materials that are available online uh, at the Carnegie website for this project was to do that work uh, uh, and, and hopefully encourage the government to, uh, uh, and in particular, I guess, Congress, to mandate that this be done on an annual basis. Because as much as I, uh, well, enjoy probably isn't the right word, but as much as I take interest in doing this on, I guess now, a, you know, a decade basis, it would be far more productive for the government to not rely on somebody from the NGO community but to actually have this work done by the administration and by successive administrations, A, so that there is a consistent level uh, or a consistent record uh, of what we're spending, uh, and, and B, so that everybody understands what the numbers are and we can move forward with full knowledge of what it is we're doing, whether you happen to support all these programs or support some of them or, you know, have, have deep antipathy toward them. Whatever your feelings may happen to be, you can't really have effective policy if you don't know what it is that you're spending. So what are we spending today? And again, these figures are from 2008. There's not a tremendous amount of difference uh, through 2010. Obviously, the 2011 budget request does make some, some changes, and I'll get to that near the end. Um, well, we estimated that uh, the amount of money spent by the United States in total was at least $52.4 billion on nuclear weapons and weapons-related programs. And I have to add the caveat at least because we did not count any intelligence-related spending because we had no access to classified information, and quite frankly, even if we did, the intelligence community doesn't parse its budgets on you know how much they spend on nuclear weapons versus how much they spend on terrorism versus how much they spend on all the other things that they're doing. I think that they could do that, and I think it would be useful for policymakers, but they don't. So we don't include that, and there's a few other categories that we don't include as well. So the number is at least, or as much as, but it's not uh, you know, a definitive um, bottom line. That's just the way that it is. Uh, most of that money, uh, a little over 55% or $29 billion, goes towards nuclear forces and operational support. Uh, that is actually making our nuclear deterrent uh, usable and viable. Most of that money is vested in the Department of Energy um, and the Department of Defense, and specifically the National Nuclear 
Security Administration. Um, then we have what we call deferred environmental and health costs. These are costs, they're, they're called deferred because they were not paid for at the time the costs were incurred during the Cold War. These are things like cleaning up uh, radioactive and toxic waste resulting from nuclear weapons production and testing activities and compensating people, both civilians and people who worked in the nuclear weapons program, uh, for injuries they suffered as a consequence of doing that work. Uh, that, that amount of money is, uh, at least in 2008, was about $8.3 billion. And if you look actually at the bar chart, uh, which is figure two uh, in the report, which is on page, I want to say page eight. Let's see if my memory is as good as I think it is. Uh, yes. Uh, if you look at figure two, you will notice that uh, when you look at the uh, cost for uh, nuclear forces and operational support spending and deferred environmental costs, at least for the Department of Energy, they are almost exactly the same, uh, which is uh, interesting, uh, interesting historical development. And uh, it, it's likely that they will probably remain that way for some time to come uh, because both those programs are going to be spending money uh, uh, fairly significantly for, for the foreseeable future. Um, then we, uh, we've got costs for um, missile defense at about nine point. Uh, $2 billion, uh, nuclear threat reduction uh, at uh, $5.2 billion, and uh, nuclear incident management um, coming in at uh, about $700 billion. So I'm trying to look at my figures here in the light. Um, we provide definitions for all these categories in the report. Again, people may take issue with whether something belongs in this category or that category uh, or, or how we came up with the categories at all. Um, we tried to be completely transparent about this in the report, and in fact, the entire database is online, so you can go and, and play with the numbers yourself um, if, you're, if you're interested in doing that. Uh, but the point was to try to provide a breakdown uh, of spending that would make sense in terms of today's terms, not in terms of uh, uh, what we were doing um, during the Cold War. Now, another significant figure, to, or another significant thing to note is that uh, nuclear weapons spending consumes about 67% of the Department of Energy's budget. Um, for people who aren't familiar with what the Department of Energy actually does, that will come as a surprise. You might assume, given its name, that it works mostly on energy issues. But because the Department of Energy is the successor to the Atomic Energy Commission, which it's itself was a successor to the Manhattan Project, it inherited the nuclear weapons mission, and it's been doing it all of these years. And uh, it's a significant part of the Department of Energy's mission uh, and, and budget. Um, no other department spends that percentage of, of, uh, of money uh, on nuclear weapons. Even for the Defense Department, for example, it's about 7.1%. Um, let's see, what else can I, can I say about this? Um, the. Uh, we do have some, since I don't have a, a ton of time here, and I, obviously I've got to gloss over some of this. Um, one of the things that we, uh, we wanted to do with this report was just you know, really raise awareness about where the money is going, uh, not, to, not so much to critique it, but to, to explain where the money is going so that, again, we could make informed uh, policy choices. Uh, this is something that has historically been very difficult to do. Again, you know, Congress will debate the merits of this missile, or, or that submarine, but they're not looking at the overall picture. Uh, and and it, it's my hope that when the nuclear posture review comes out and that there are hearings uh, in the House and Senate that we may begin to see uh, the beginning of that. We didn't with the last nuclear posture review, but maybe this time 
uh, we will, given the, the growing interest uh, in, in, in nuclear issues and, and, and disarmament in the Obama administration's plans. Um, but the fact is that we're spending you know, significant, significant amounts of taxpayer dollars on this year in and year out, and, but because there's no line item in the budget and because there are very few hearings about this, it's not something that garners uh, a lot of attention. And in fact, really since the end of the Cold War, a lot of these programs have coasted along. There was a fair amount of interest in the early 1990s about the quote-unquote cleanup program that the Department of Energy is running uh, to deal with some of those deferred uh, environmental costs. Uh, but even after a few years of that, you know, it's it sort of shifted into a kind of normalcy where we, you know, spend about six, seven billion dollars a year on that now, and it doesn't generate a whole lot of attention uh, or, or even controversy at this point in, in, in most sectors. So our, our hope is that, uh, you know, this report will be taken by people who have the power to do something with it and, and, and use it to perhaps pass legislation that would require the administration to come up with a nuclear weapons budget and weapons-related budget um, on its own. I would point out that we uh, ran our methodology and our figures by uh, folks at the Government Accountability Office, both during the initial research phase of the project and then once we con concluded the program. Uh, and uh, although they're not endorsing the report in any way, that would be um, obviously inappropriate, uh, they didn't find any serious problems with what we did, and they thought that it was a very useful um, exercise. Um, so I, I'm sure that they would not be unhappy if the request started coming in from at least a few congressional offices to start looking at this uh, uh, in, in, in more detail. Um, let's see here. I probably would just have a couple more minutes. So uh, let me um, – this is going to raise more questions than I can probably answer. So let me, let me just skip to the recommendations here. Again, the, the charts and uh, uh, the data are all in there, so you can pour over that. Um, at your leisure, and some of this ties into what uh, Christopher is going to talk about, so I'm sure we can get into it um, in more detail. Oh, um, well, I guess, yeah, one, one thing to note here is that uh, one, one of the things that surprised us is that given all the talk about uh, nuclear terrorism and um, uh, concerns about that, it's, it was surprising to us that so little money, something on the order of like 5% of the entire nuclear weapons quote-unquote budget, was being spent on uh, preventing or, or deterring nuclear terrorism. Now, there may be reasons for that. Uh, you know, it's not like throwing a whole lot of money at that problem is going to make it go away. Um, but it really, it struck us that, you know, if that is the number one concern that we've had over the last five, six, eight years or so, um, that, that there isn't more money going into it. Maybe it doesn't need more money. I, it, that's, that's a debatable point. Um, but again, you know, significant amounts of money are going into, uh, to put it crudely, blowing things up, i.e. making our weapons usable, and relatively little money is going to keeping things from blowing us up. And that is not, again, that was a finding in the report. It's not something that I've seen um, widely uh, discussed or reported um, since, since this came out. Um, why don't I, because I could go on and on, but I won't, uh, why don't I just stop there? I'm sorry if this seems more disjointed than I intended, but it's, it's a long report and there's only so much time in the day. Um, but I'd be happy, to the extent that I've totally confused you, to answer any questions you might have uh, during the Q&A period. So, thank you. Thank you, Steve. Thank you very much. Uh, next up we have uh, Dr. Christopher... Dr. Christopher Preble. He is the Director of Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. 
he's the author of uh, several books. His most recent is The Power Problem, How American Military Dominance Made Us Makes Us Less Safe, Less Prosperous, and Less Free. It was published by the Cornell University Press, but uh, we, we do have a few copies at Cato, and we've been uh, distributing those to, to folks, including people on the Hill. And if you're interested in getting a copy, uh, you just see me after the, uh, after the briefing. Um, before joining Cato back in 2003, uh, Dr. Preble taught history at St. Cloud State University and Temple University. He was also a commissioned officer in the U.S. Navy and is, an, is a veteran of, Gulf, of, uh, of the Gulf War, having served aboard the USS Ticonderoga from 1990 to 1993. He holds his Ph.D. in history from Temple University. With that, I'll turn things over to Dr. Preble. Great. Thank you, Brandon. <coughs> thanks, uh, thanks to Brandon. Thanks to all of you for attending. Thanks to Stephen Schwartz for taking time out. I assume that most of you are here to to hear Stephen. Um, uh, You're too be, modest. It'll be pretty obvious here uh, in a minute who the real expert is on this subject, although um, I, in my own defense, uh, I, I came at this uh, subject of nuclear weapons qu quite some time ago. My, my dissertation, my first book in graduate school, I studied um, the period in the late 1950s and early 1960s when the nuclear arsenal you know, crossed over 20,000 warheads when, when we developed, the government developed the uh, single integrated operational plan, the PSYOP, with thousands and thousands of aim points. Um, one of my graduate advisors, that was where he made a name for himself. We, you know, we also had in the 1960s, early 1960s, Herman Kahn running around telling about how we're going to wage and win a thermonuclear war. So that's, that was the first taste I had of... Uh, of nuclear weapons. I also, as Brandon alluded to, I did serve in the Navy. Thankfully, I did not have direct knowledge of nuclear weapons in the Navy, and I did not serve on a submarine. Uh, I served on a surface ship. If you don't think there's a big difference, uh, well, you're wrong. Uh, so uh, um, most recently, however, I've become more interested in the nuclear weapons issue, uh, partly because uh, thanks to the Plowshares Fund, we have uh, received some uh, support for a new project, the Nuclear Proliferation Update, which I think many of you have. Uh, that was also an opportunity for us to, to showcase some of Stephen's work, and that's why I continue to work on the force structure. I mean, uh, Stephen alluded to having informed policy choices, and what I hope to do over the next few minutes is try to map out a case for an informed policy choice. The title of my talk is From Triad to Dyad. So we'll see if I uh, do a good job of at least mapping out the decision criteria we should use for uh, changing our force structure from three legs to two. Let me start, though, just by saying, uh, you know, I believe, and I, I stipulate this in the book, that one of the crucial roles for our military is deterrence. Um, and, you know, just to review, and I hope it's not hopelessly uh, elementary for some of you, um, you know, the success of deterrence is ultimately psychological, right? It's trying to convince the other guy uh, that you are going to be able to retaliate no matter what happens, no matter what particular circumstances uh, uh, relate to his attack, and therefore he cannot get off a shot uh, without knowing that, uh, that, the, that we are going to be able to retaliate. Now, in my book, I argue that a credible deterrent uh, could be less than one-fifth the size of the current arsenal. The current arsenal is about 2,200 warheads, strategic warheads. I'm talking strategic here. Um, and I say that we could have a credible uh, deterrent with 500 warheads. But numbers are not the only criteria here, and not the only consideration. And, you know, if they were, if numbers were all that mattered, uh, you can just do the math of uh, uh, five ballistic missile submarines, each carrying 96 warheads, uh, would be sufficient to deter any state. If 500, just some number, or pick 1,000, it's twice that number. 
And that's the logic behind the triad, right? In the interest of ensuring a survivable second strike, uh, we've had uh, for many years now, decades really, we have uh, uh, warheads deployed on uh, bombers or capable of being deployed on bombers, and we also still have about 450 Minuteman uh, ICBMs uh, here in the continental United States. And, and this is the logic behind the triad. And again, it go, you know, go back to the history of it. The logic was created, it was created in, in the 1950s. The U.S. arsenal surpassed 10,000 warheads, and then right after 1960, over 20,000 were, lo were locked in this bitter struggle with a comparably armed adversary, uh, forces on hair trigger alert. And to be honest, the technology uh, was a little unsure, okay? And so uh, we started with missiles that were deployed from forward locations close to the, the Soviet Union and, uh, or, or bombers la launched from bases that were close to the Soviet Union over time. We were able to launch ICBMs from the continental United States. And the third leg of the triad was uh, in late 1960, the deployment of the USS George Washington, the first Polaris missile submarine. The difference between the Polaris submarines and the Trident submarines today are just like night and day. But the logic, the actual fundamental logic, was established, and the triad was established uh, by my uh, count about December, November, December of 1960, when the, when the Washington uh, first deployed. So if you think that the arsenal peaked, you think about the arsenal peaked about 32,000 warheads in 1967. Many of these are tactical, and again, I'm mainly talking here. I'm, I'm, I'm talking here about strategic. But 32,000 warheads in 1967, and now we're at 2,200, um, which is a remarkable achievement. I mean, we need, to, we need to kind of, for a moment, pause and just take account of that. Um, that... 2200 number was stipulated in the SORT Treaty, the Treaty of Moscow, and um, and now, of course, uh, as we speak, there are talks to try to establish a follow-on agreement to the START <laughs> agreement, and I think it's reasonable for planning purposes to assume that the number is, is going to come down even further. My sources suggest to me the START will probably settle on around 1675 strategic warheads and about 800 deliveries. Right, just keep those numbers in mind. They're not, <clears throat> they're not definitive at all because the point I'm trying to make is this is about a decision criteria. And so even if one questions the wisdom or even the morality of developing nuclear weapons in the 1940s, if you question the decision to deploy them in large numbers in the 1950s and the 1960s and to do so at multiple locations and on multiple delivery vehicles, I, I personally think that decision was defensible in the context of the Cold War. <clears throat> okay. At some point, however, and I can't say precisely when, the triad went from being prudent to questionable and ultimately from questionable to absurd. And at some point in the future, as the number of warheads continues to come down, I submit that the maintenance of the, strategic, of the triad shifts from absurd to patently, ridiculously, transparently absurd. I can't tell you when, I can't tell you what that number is, because it's, it's psychological, it's subjective, right? I've already alluded to this. But I submit that deploying an SSBN, a ballistic missile submarine, boomers, as we used to call them, I guess they still do, right? Uh, <laughs> with its full complement of crew, key point, okay, <laughs> but with only half of its missile tubes filled, or with one-third or one-fourth the number of warheads the, that, the, that the missiles were originally designed to carry, 
all for the purposes of retaining a force structure that was designed when there were 20,000 and ultimately 30,000 warheads in the arsenal, I think that looks pretty absurd to me. And this gets to Stephen's point about trying to make decisions about force structure according to some rational calculus. And that's why my, my current research project is to look at the three legs of the triad and determine which of the three is the most defensible that uh, we can justify retaining and which of the three legs is the least logical. Now, <clears throat> please don't mi uh, misunderstand me. I'm not naive. Uh, we're having this briefing on Capitol Hill for a reason. <laughs> uh, I understand that there are many absurd policies that persist long after their initial rationale has gone away. I could come up with a couple like mohair subsidies, sugar quotas, the FTC. I could probably come up with a few more if you give me some more time. The point is, actually, I could come up with an entire, uh, yeah. <laughs> so <clears throat> I could come up with a lot. Okay, the point is that uh, I'm going to talk about these different systems just very, very briefly and just kind of explore what, what thinking goes into this based on the strategic merit not the domestic political considerations. And I'm also generally unsympathetic, if it wasn't clear, it will be, uh, that I'm, I'm not particularly sympathetic to the argument that we need to retain these capabilities, even if they're not necessary per se for the deterrent, so that we don't lose the capacity to change course in the future. I guess I have a bit more faith in our dynamic economy and our knowledge base to be able to recover these assets fairly quickly uh, and again, we're not talking here about hard assets as much as knowledge and, and know-how, uh, and I just don't think that those things go away quite as easily and quickly as, as some people suggest when they talk about the defense infrastructure, not just with respect to nuclear weapons. Um, so, so that's the premise, and I'm just going to very quickly walk through what I think should be the, the key decision criteria. Uh, just quickly walk through what are the three legs of the triad. Again, most of you will probably already know this, but just for the sake of review, and then to, to map out a couple of the decision criteria. We have 14 ballistic missile submarines, uh, 12 at any one time are operational, two in, in uh, overhaul, some capacity upgrade, um, uh, eight based in the Pacific at, uh, in Washington State, Bangor, and uh, six on the Atlantic, uh, Kings Bay, Georgia. Okay. Each of those uh, ballistic missile submarines carries 24 Trident II uh, missiles. Uh, these were, these for my purposes, I, I estimate they average about four warheads each, so about 96 warheads per boat. Okay, now, it should be noted, and I've already alluded to this a little bit, the Trident system was initially designed to carry 12 warheads per missile. Um, it was brought down to eight per the terms of the START Treaty, and then again from six, and then to four to comply with the SORT Treaty. So we have already gone down that path that I alluded to where we have a weapon system, an entire platform, and we progressively reduce the number of warheads uh, per. But still, to this day, the SLBM fleet uh, consists of about 40% of the total nuclear arsenal right now, okay, active strategic arsenal. It's also extraordinarily reliable, and I think we should just dwell on this for a minute. There have been 130 tests of the Trident system since 1989, all of them successful, which even the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists says is a performance unmatched by any other ballistic missile system in the world. And yes, this is where my parochialism shows through. I think it's remarkable that we can do that from a, a submerged submarine, but that's just me. Uh, we also have 450 Minuteman ICBMs. Uh, these, again, uh, in uh, three different locations, uh, uh, field out at Warren Air Force Base, Colorado, Nebraska, Wyoming. Uh, mine at North Dakota and in, Mon in Montana, Malmstrom. Uh, 150 each, uh, 450 total. 
Again, for my purposes, these were designed to carry three warheads, but I'm assuming they're each going to carry one. Some of them already do. They're moving in that direction. That's probably where we're going to end up. And then we have the manned bombers, B-52s and B-2s, uh, basically three different bases, Barksdale in Louisiana, mine in North Dakota, and Whiteman in Missouri. Uh, these can carry, uh, well, the B-2 can carry up to 16 bombs or cruise missiles, and the B-52 is up to 20 cruise missiles or eight bombs. So these are platforms that are uh, quite flexible, uh, and can carry quite a number of weapons or, or no nuclear weapons at all. That's one of the decision criteria that I'll get to very quickly. So here's what I've mapped out as five decision criteria that should guide how we decide which of the legs of the triad to keep, which, which of the one if you're thinking of this as a stool to kick out, and hopefully the stool doesn't fall over when we kick out one of those three legs. Um, the first is cost, but that's obviously not the most important criteria and certainly not the only criteria. Um, if you think through costs, you know, kind of my back of the envelope calculation suggests the Minuteman costs are largely sunk, the maintenance costs are not particularly high, uh, personnel costs are not very high, and by that criteria, the SSBNs and the bombers are, are higher. Uh, we could debate uh, how much higher. Uh, I've already alluded to this. Another decision criteria, uh, would the platform have a dual or multi-purpose? The bombers obviously do. There's some talk about making the SSBNs capable of converting conventional weapons. I, I recognize this. I'm, I'm questioning whether or not that's necessarily a good thing. Uh, if you think about nuclear weapons as uh, signaling, if it's not absolutely clear what kind of weapon that, uh, that system is carrying, uh, it may not be entirely clear what you're trying to signal, if you follow me. Um, another consideration that I toss out there, which was one of the key selling points to the Polaris program in the late 1950s, is just a strategic consideration. Is it a good idea to put... Uh, your strategic assets in the middle of your homeland, so to speak, and essentially inviting attack. Um, now, in fairness, uh, the Minutemen are not deployed near population centers, or at least large population centers, um, but that's just something to keep in mind. I think that is one of the key selling points of the SSBN, is that they, they are um, very survivable and remote. Uh, another consideration, recall or signaling, this is one of the key criteria that was the selling point of the bombers going back to the 1950s, is they can be recalled, uh, notwithstanding uh, Dr. Strangelove. Uh, they can be recalled. This was more of an issue uh, once upon a time, and there were some related concerns about command and control of the, of the SSBNs. I think that's not as much of a concern as it used to be, certainly. Um, and I also would note, as an aside, that this is really only an issue. You talk about signaling if you're trying to send a message, uh, and so you, you, know, you sortie bombers or you uh, put uh, boomers out to sea. That's only an issue in the absence of a no-first-use policy, which we still don't explicitly have a no-first-use policy, although, again, I think if we talk about force structure, we should revisit whether or not that's the pr appropriate posture for the United States. And the last point is survivability. I've already alluded to this. Cost is not the only criteria. If we're talking about having a credible deterrent, knowing that you have a secure second strike, um, again, I don't think there's a clear winner or loser in this category, although perhaps for parochial reasons it seems to me I lean a little bit more towards the subs. Again, the, the Trident are uh, exceptionally uh, reliable and, and, a, and a much more uh, sophisticated system, certainly, than the very first uh, boats that were deployed in the, in the early 1960s. So those are the decision criteria that I've come up with, and in the course of the next few weeks, I'm going to work with my colleagues to try to put some flesh on the bones, uh, and I, I, I toss these out really, again, for the purposes of trying to stimulate a discussion so that the decision ultimately is not based on parochial, political, uh, and domestic 
considerations, but really on the strategic merit. Uh, and I welcome uh, comments and suggestions for what to add or remove from the list. Thank you very much.